informing America's farmers and ranchers. This is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. We'll get Darren back on the line, folks. And then we're going to talk through what is happening. As we take a look at the trade this morning, starting the week off, again, Thanksgiving week, generally slow. A lot of traders are taking their profits and headed home. And uh, we're kind of seeing that play out today. Not a lot of movement here in the grain market. Wheat market, biggest mover on the day. It is to the downside as uh, as we are seeing Chicago wheat down 9 to 10 cents. We've got some positive news here over in the soybean meal market. And it sounds like Darren Newton is on the line. Darren, uh, do we have you? <laughs> I am here, Mike. Good morning. Good morning, sir. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. Sir, I wanted to ask you about that cattle on feed report on Friday. I know you're not uh, too keen on USDA reports. Was that one that even merited a look, in your opinion? You know, I like to look at the cattle on feed report. I mean, it's kind of a, a, a roadmap to show where we were. Uh, you know, and basically what I use it for is to confirm what I already saw in spreads. Uh, in spread activity for last month, because remember, these are as of November 1, so it was placements and marketings and all of that uh, as of, you know, over the course of the month of October, and we could, we could read it as it went along in the spreads, and you just get uh, what looks to be some confirmation with the data that, that's released every month. So it was interesting. I didn't see anything earth-shattering, anything, you know, that should really make markets jump one way or the other uh, in that, yeah, I know there's always some speculative reaction, but, you know, fundamentally, it didn't really change anything. Darren, looking at the spreads that you do, driving out to April. They're in the live cattle complex. We are knocking at the door of 160. We've picked up over it, I believe, last week. What sort of price upside do you see here in the cattle market, or is the risk developing more to the downside as we head into winter? You know, it's it's interesting. Uh, the future spreads still are largely bearish, so this tells me that, you know, as we continue to push these markets higher, uh, these futures markets higher, that it does increase the risk to the downside. Now, that being said, you know, we look at that April futures contract uh, and, you know, it popped to a new contract high today, uh, left a little bit of a gap. To me, probably a good sell area because we've still got cash in the 151, 152 area uh, with April right now, up, you know, pushing up against 160. Seems to be a little bit overpriced in here, seems to be a little bit heavy. Uh, and we'll see. Yeah, I, I would think that it could start to fall off a little bit. We've seen some pressure in box feed. We'll see how long that lasts. Uh, but, you know, these look like they're going to be pretty good selling opportunities if, you know, and then you have to take into account, are they profitable or not? That is the million-dollar question, Darren. And with input prices climbing, it is, it's a mm-hmm. tough road to hoe for those folks on the feeding side of the equation. And it looks like input costs are going to continue to t- stay strong. Darren, you mentioned earlier this morning we had a rejection of the proposed deal here for railroad workers on Class 1 railroads. This seems like it's raising the likelihood of a strike. Is the market pricing that in at all? You know, I haven't seen the market factor it in yet you know we still see basis just skyrocketing and maybe that is a reflection you know from particularly from the uh you know western corn belt and so on where they're having to rail corn in because they're in a corn deficit area so they're getting everything they can locked in uh maybe that's where we're actually seeing this play out it it certainly was not bullish news uh with the latest rejection of the labor deal you know where there's still a chance of the strike occurring uh looks like i think in december Uh, i can't remember what day for sure but i believe it's scheduled now for december uh that's certainly going to be be tough on the markets because again we can't move anything on the river we can't move very much it seems on the river uh, because of how low it is trucks are doing all they can uh so much so that it's pulling diesel supplies down and now let's say that we're not going to have uh we're going to have a rail strike that that's going to make that's going to make things moving things around here in the u.s that much more difficult darren it is and it's going to add to volatility here how should producers what is what is a good strategy to minimize some of the risk that could be coming in the next six weeks you know the, the biggest thing is these you can't make a bad decision if, you, if you're marketing grain right now let's take it into the grain sphere and, and out of uh, out of livestock but if we're just looking at grains you particularly in corn and soybeans you can't make a bad decision right now these are good prices with excellent basis sell a little bit along the way because if we get into a rail strike and all of a sudden we can't move anything, basis could collapse. And so we've got strong basis. 
uh, a lot, you know, in both markets. So as the markets move, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there each week, each day, you, may, you might want to just let some go. And then when and if this thing plays out and we need to get back in the market, we can do it through futures, we can do it through options. So, I, you know, I would be safe and just continue to make some cash sales, continue to take advantage of the markets that we have right now, because we don't know how this is all going to play out in the next few weeks. We certainly don't. Darren, over the next few weeks, seasonality here in the commodity markets, what happens to the managed money on that month between Thanksgiving and Christmas? Yeah, everybody pretty much goes home and, and it, basic markets basically fall asleep. Uh, and we're already seeing some signs of that. And, you know, what which makes it even more interesting this year is that in October, we saw, you know, U.S. stock indexes post some bullish uh, reversal patterns on their long-term charts. So, if this continues to pull money out of commodities and back into the stocks and stock indexes, you know, that's going to, markets like to drift down. I learned that a long time ago. It's easier for them to drift down than up. So if we've got non-commercial money coming out and stock markets indicating they may be a good buy down in here, it doesn't matter if fundamentals are bullish for corn, soybeans, you know, winter wheat, it should be hardwood, winter wheat, and so on. We could still see money come out of these markets. And if that's the case, then they're going to work a little bit lower. Basis will stay strong up until the point that we get some sort of rail strike, uh, and then we'll see what happens. But, you know, I think they're going to get pretty quiet, and when they get quiet, they tend to drift lower. They tend to drift lower unless they are spooked by some weird, wacky news announcement like potentially a rail strike here in the next couple of weeks. Folks, we have been talking to our friend Darren Newsom of Newsom Analysis. You can find him online at DarrenNewsom.com. And, Darren, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me on again, Mike. Folks, stick around. When AOA returns, we'll be checking in with John Baranek, our friend from DTN Weather, about what to expect here on the busiest travel week of the year. Stick around for more AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. This is the place most people think of when they hear that a seed has been engineered for superior performance and designed with proven genetic traits. Because something like that could only come from a lab, right? But this is where Allegiant Seed by CHS comes from. It's made by farmers for farmers. Its advanced genetics and unbeatable value are proven here in their fields to make sure they do the job in yours. Talk to your CHS retailer about Allegiant Seed today or learn more at AllegiantSeed.com. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the monthly grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. At Bravant's. Our corn and soybean varieties are vetted nearly 3 million times against the competition. How many? 3 million frickin' times! Hey man, I'm standing right next to you. Ah, sorry, got a little excited. Don't take us at our word, take us at our proof. Visit Bravant.com to see for yourself. Bravant Seeds, it's about time. Bravant multi-year on-farm pre-commercial head-to-head comparisons, third-party and research trials, based on more than 2.8 million comparisons. This is Ernie Johnson Jr. Sports is about overcoming obstacles. And college coaches work hard to help young men overcome Duchenne muscular dystrophy. It's called Coach to Cure MD and you can help. Text the word CURE to 501-501 to donate $25 on your next mobile phone bill. Or go online to coachtocuremd.org. Text the word CURE to 501-501. Help coaches cure MD. Brought to you by the American Football Coaches Association. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half 
don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA. Boy, I tell you, it is that time of year when weather moves to center focus for a lot of folks as we prepare for those travels, perhaps to see family, get across the country, and celebrate the Thanksgiving holiday. It is expected to be another busy travel week for Americans, and I'm wondering... Is there any hiccups on the radar? Well, joining us to discuss that is Mr. John Baranek of DTN Weather. And John, last week there was talk about a potential storm across at least the central part of the U.S. on Thanksgiving. Is that still on the radar? It still is, but there's kind of two camps of thought here, which is kind of interesting because we're getting kind of close to the storm system. And, um, you know, uh, if you look at it, the European model has a very progressive system moving through, kind of like it had last week. Uh, the American GFS, which, um, you know, isn't totally off its rocker, has something a little different. Instead of having a progressive system moving right across the country, kind of holds back a lot of its energy across the southern plains for a couple of days and then brings the system through over the weekend. So um, it's it's got some wide variability even this close to the the the, uh, the date where we're expecting kind of everything to to, to happen and so um you know it's it's really interesting to see this this close to the event uh i have a tendency to believe the european model a little bit more than the rest i kind of have a bias towards it myself anyway but um so i'm, I'm kind of expecting a system to to develop here in the plains kind of wednesday night but not a whole lot of precipitation for it then once it gets to the Mississippi River, kind of early Thursday morning, start picking up some showers uh, with it and then moving across the eastern half of the country into early Saturday before uh, moving its way out. Um, that looks like it's mostly rain. We could see some snow with that uh, kind of wrapped up on the backside of it uh, in a couple of spots, uh, just depending on where that would occur. But I, again, I have to stress that's kind of what I'm expecting, but I wouldn't be totally surprised if it's completely different and everybody's just completely dry or just a few isolated showers on Thursday into Friday like the uh, like the American model has and then bring through some better precipitation across the eastern half of the country than Saturday and Sunday. So um, very interesting look to me and I'm you know I'm not totally confused by both of them it's just crazy how far the timing is is separate on both of them yeah and to have that kind of discrepancy between the models here two three days out from a weather yeah. event is certainly interesting and John is it because there is just too much I don't want to call it uncertainty in the air but is the atmosphere unbalanced in some ways that's what making it hard for these models to try and predict what's going to happen no it's it's honestly it's just the um how these different models are handle, handling small pieces of energy. And really what we're looking at is these this energy is actually over the Pacific Ocean right now. And so we don't have a whole lot of weather data that uh, we can get from it because it's over the ocean. Once it gets over land here uh, later today and early tomorrow, then we'll be able to get a better picture of it, I think. So um, just, just because, you know, we don't send uh, upper air balloons over the Pacific Ocean. We just have some satellites to work off of. Uh, these models can handle these small little features um, uh, differently. And what, what's really interesting is this small little thing turns out to grow quite large once it hits the middle of the country, but it's starting off as a small piece of energy. Okay, and that's the that's what the spark that sort of kicks off the powder keg potentially here with that uh, that midweek system. John, you mentioned that uh, we've seen some precipitation, we've seen some moisture falling across the Mississippi River Basin. I know you keep track of what's developing there in the waterways. Is the trend higher? Are we starting to add some more depth into the river channels? We have, and um, if you look at the National Weather Service, they do a great job of of tracking the uh, river levels um, through the major river systems. And, you know, 
when they get really low or below their their normal thresholds, they'll they'll turn brown on their on their uh, on their graph. There's only one brown spot right now, and that's right around Memphis. So all the so a lot of the uh, the water levels have increased um, over the last you know week or two, uh, but unfortunately, without any major precipitation coming through, and you know depending on how the storm system moves through later this week. Um, it's likely to be, uh, you know, falling river levels yet again. So um, we've got a temporary boost in them. We're getting some better traffic, I've heard, and that's that's good news. But it might not last too long, unfortunately. All right, John. Well, you know, I know we have been, you have been tracking the uh, the formation of La Nina, the development and the continuation of La Nina there in the Southern Pacific. Can you give us an update? What are those ocean temperatures doing? And is there any indication that we might be beginning that transition back to a, an El Nino? Well, we're still in La Nina, um, just as predicted, but we should be reaching the peak right about now. We haven't seen any easement yet or any warming anywhere just yet, but we're starting to see um, if, if we look deep into the ocean, we're seeing blobs of warmer water start to move their way eastward from uh, Australia, uh, kind of underneath all that cold, all, all that cold water at the surface. And um, once we start getting that kind of up to the surface, which looks like it'll be happening over the next couple of months, we'll be slowly eroding all that cold, cold water away and uh, getting up to at least neutral conditions here. But that's not going to happen until probably February or March. So it's going to be a while yet. All right. So in the meantime, really no big uh, winter is coming. We're going to move into winter. <laughs> but otherwise, it's going to remain that La Nina pattern here as we go through December, January, and potentially into February. Yeah, that's correct. So it's going to have a, ca a continued handle on our weather pattern here. You know, it, it, it accounts for the most... Uh, or the largest influence of our weather is La Nina, but it's not the only one. But still, it, it does promote kind of a, a clipper pattern across the northern states, which uh, tends to lead to some decent normal-type precipitation, but colder air across the north. And unfortunately, they don't penetrate too often too far south, so it ends up pretty warm and dry across the south. So, uh, you know, we've got drought pretty much everywhere right now, honestly. We've got a lot of it across the country, and, um, you know, it's especially of those southern areas, we don't expect that to, to go away until probably springtime, hopefully springtime. Hopefully in springtime. Yeah. Yes, I think that's a sentiment echoed by a lot of folks out there in those droughted territories. John, speaking of droughted territories, let's go down to Argentina. They have been grappling with an extended drought. It had delayed some of their soybean planting, their first crop plantings. What's the weather situation like down there? Are we still seeing that slowness to get moisture? It, it is. I mean, they have been getting occasional waves of it. Um, over this last weekend, they got another one, uh, and fortunately for them, it fell over some of the more um, uh, droughty areas that they've had, the ones that got skipped over from the last period. So it's helpful, but it, a cold front moved through them uh, over the weekend, and they're going to be dry all this week. So uh, some areas that didn't get enough rain or even the little bits of rain uh, that happened, and a lot of it was kind of a half inch to an inch or maybe an inch and a half. Um, not going to sustain them when their temperatures are in the 70s, 80s, 90s. So, uh, you know, it's 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 good that they got some of the rain down there in Argentina, but it's not enough. They need a lot more, and they need it to be more consistent as well. Getting a one shot once a week is is not going to not going to do it for them. No, no, it's certainly not. Especially given the uh, the the shortness they've got in subsoil moisture there all the way across to Argentina. Now, John, I know it has been a better cropping picture up in Brazil. There have been some more rain events that have come through. Can you give us the update on how that country looks, particularly in the agricultural production areas? Yeah, southern Brazil has been able to, uh, they've gone drier as well. And they've all month long here have been had below normal precipitation there in those southern states. Fortunately for them, though, they had some really good rain earlier in the springtime. And so they've been able to weather that quite a bit. They've got enough, that front that went through Argentina over the weekend is now going through them. Um, and likely with some better rainfall there too. So I think we're more in the one to two inch range than kind of a little bit less than what we saw in Argentina. Um, but they go dry after that too. And, um, you know, I'm starting to get a little bit concerned for those Southern states um, if they don't get this rain. And, um, you know, some of these soils down there are sandier too, so they don't hold on to the water quite uh, quite as well. So if, if, if we can't get it to, to to move back in there a little bit more of a frequent pace, you know, just like Argentina getting 
a shot of rain once a once a week doesn't really help them uh, too much. So uh, they're going to need more. They certainly will. John, you mentioned it might be starting to dry out there in those southern states here in the coming weeks. What are temps going to do? Are you seeing them start to accelerate here in this La Nina season? Yeah, you know, normally temperatures down there in the in the southern states are uh, up in the 80s and into the 90s. Um, uh, and that's fairly frequent. Um, you know, we don't see any change in that going forward. Um, temperatures should be near or maybe even a little bit above normal, especially if they if they get the dryness. Um, if they don't have showers and clouds over the top of them, uh, they heat up pretty good. So they'll be in the in the 90s a little bit more frequently, I think. So that also uh, obviously produces a lot more stresses for crops. It certainly does. I know the trade up here has been watching to see what happens with that Brazil and Argentinian soy crop and some heat and dryness might be a catalyst to get some bulls back into the markets. Folks, we've been talking with John Baranek of DTN Weather. John, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on and have a great holiday. And folks, stick around when we come back. Seeger Johans of Public Lands Council will be joining us. We're going to talk through the breaking news on the lesser prairie chicken moving on to the endangered species list. Stick around for more AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. With harvest wrapping up, channel technical agronomist Don Gustafson joins me to provide an outlook on harvest and an analysis of channel's product performance this year. Don, what are some growers in your region considering as you look ahead to the 23 season? Well, I recommend that folks plan for normal in more ways than one. Plan for normal in terms of maturity. Um, overall, the farmers that switched to early maturities this year, they left some bushels on the table. So for 2023, plant your normal maturity range, but uh, don't early it up because you lose bush bushels. But also be careful not to go too long in maturity uh, because an early frost can really ding that late corn, especially when planted out of zone. And with great genetics at our channel lineup, uh, we have a diverse portfolio that can cover just about every acre. From that was channel technical agronomist Don Gustafson. To see how channel products are performing in your area and sign up to receive local harvest results via text or email, visit channel.com yield. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, we start off with mostly lower markets uh, here on Monday as we get into the holiday shortened week, at least in the grains and oil seeds, that is mostly lower, although we're finding a little bit of buying strength in soybean meal, so that could help out uh, soybeans here today. We're trading just below unchanged now with corn down two to three. Wheat futures are down a little bit as well. We have a U.S. dollar index that's been trending higher to start the week off over Overall, though, we're watching South American weather. Argentina received isolated rains over the weekend, but still needs more moisture. We'll be keeping a heavy focus on what's going on in Brazil and Argentina the next couple of weeks ahead. Meantime, wheat futures uh, facing another mostly dry week ahead in the southern plains with warmer weather in the western plains. That's going to continue to stress that wheat crop down there. We have to keep our eyes on that moving forward as well. According to the Associated Press, eastern Ukraine has seen a heavy barrage of military strikes as we are working through the weekend, and it's threatening the safety of the Zaporizhia nuclear plant. That is of concern. We're going to be watching uh, what's going on with Ukraine and Russia as that grain deal has been extended for another four months. Ukraine's corn harvest, only 50% harvested. It may struggle to make additional progress, though, as winter sets in amid shortages of fuel and parts. In the livestock trade, cattle are off to a decent start as we got that uh, fairly bullish cattle on feed report on Friday afternoon. The placements number especially was bullish. A lot of numbers, uh, the lowest since the series began since 1996. So that's that's giving us a decent uh, start in the cattle market on Monday. Well, the hog market is relatively mixed as well. Crude oil sharply lower to start, down about $4 a barrel on Monday's trade. So watching all of that factor into the market action to start the holiday-shortened week. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. 
And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and a feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve, together we can make a difference bite by bite. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. You know, over the course of this past year, we have been talking about the Biden administration's approach to the Endangered Species Act and the action we're seeing develop under this administration. And we saw some of that action come to fruition last Thursday. U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service moved to classify the lesser prairie chicken in Kansas as threatened, and they moved it to the endangered list in both Texas and New Mexico. Well, cattle producers are certainly taking a look at this, and they are not happy. Joining us now is Sigrid Johannes. She is the Associate Director at the Public Lands Council. Sigrid, PLC came out right away and condemned this particular ruling. Could you talk us through the facts of this case? Absolutely, Mike. So there are two population segments that are named in this rule that came out from Fish and Wildlife last week. And this is a final rule, meaning it's the culmination of the whole rulemaking process. They've been working through this for several months and we've been engaging along the way. But unfortunately, we're now at the at the final result here. That northern DPS that you mentioned uh, is in southeastern Colorado, Kansas, Oklahoma, and a decent chunk of the Texas panhandle. And that is now going to be listed as threatened. And then that other chunk that you mentioned, New Mexico, and sort of the other chunk of the Texas panhandle is going to be listed as endangered. Now, that poses several uh, challenges and several new um, hurdles that cattle producers have to work around, and that's why we're so concerned about this. Uh, for an endangered species, that's, you know, sort of the, the final listing, if you will, or the final frontier. Incidental take, meaning any any accidental fatalities that take place to the species in the in the course of normal ag operations, those are going to incur the same penalties and liabilities for producers as any other endangered species. So your your large predators and things that folks might be more familiar with, that now applies to the LPC in that southern region as well. For the other chunk in the northern DPS where the bird is only listed as threatened, Fish and Wildlife has written a 4D rule, which is a carve out or exemption that is intended to protect uh, agricultural producers and other, other sort of industries and daily activities from that legal penalty for incidental take. But the big problem here and sort of the biggest thing that PLC and our other folks in the cattle industry are very concerned about is that that 4D rule falls far, far short of anything that would make a meaningful difference for cattle producers. And we are very concerned that that opens them up to a lot of legal liability that is frankly unwarranted and unfair. All right, see, there is a lot to unpack with this particular ruling. So as you mentioned, they broke the lesser prairie chicken habitat into northern and southern. Northern, that's threatened. That's where that 4B rule exists. And so for that 4B rule there in the northern territory, how does it fall short? What are they missing here in ensuring that American agriculturalists can continue to feed the people? That's a great question, Mike. I would argue they're they're missing the entire target. It's not just that they're a little bit off center. They they miss the board entirely. So this 4D rule, as it stands now, uh, and this will take effect on Tuesday, January 24th of next year, 2023. The 4D rule says that uh, legal protections, that exemption under 4D for cattle producers, for anybody grazing livestock out there in LPC habitat only apply if the grazer is following a grazing management plan that has been developed and approved by an agency approved third party. That's a that's a classic Washington sort of word salad. But basically what that means is Fish and Wildlife is going to come up with a list. They haven't done it yet, uh, but they are going to come up with a list of so-called agency approved third parties who are in the position to sign off on grazing plans. Now that 
sounds pretty insane to most people because I would argue, and most most folks would agree with me, I think, uh, that the person who's best suited to make that decision on grazing management is the person who's been grazing out there for 30 years and knows the land like the back of their hand. Uh, but according to this rule, that power and that authority is now going to move to some sort of third party. We've already asked uh, whether NRCS, for example, under USDA would, would count as a third party because we have quite a few folks, particularly in Kansas, Oklahoma, down the middle of the country who, who have some involvement with NRCS. And we've received a very non-committal response on that so far. We've received a very lukewarm response, which is, again, very concerning because it makes you wonder, OK, who are the third parties that the service has in mind for this? Who are the organizations? Because if it's not NRCS, and it's not landowners themselves who should really be in the driver's seat here. I can tell you what, it's not going to be uh, it's not going to be your cattle groups. It's not going to be your livestock groups. It's going to be your folks who have a vested interest in not seeing grazing taking place on these landscapes. And that's why we're really kind of uh, going going to the mat on this one. And I believe NCBA, PLC, they're not the only groups that will be going to the mat. Chris Kobach recently elected secretary. Secretary, or excuse me, Attorney General in the state of Kansas has long been battling this potential ruling. Is there the likelihood of a lawsuit coming, Secret? You know, I, I don't want to say too firmly one way or the other, Mike, because at the end of the day, NCBA and PLC both take their direction from our affiliates. But I can tell you that over the next few days and weeks, what we're going to be doing before this rule takes effect is meeting with all of our affiliates who are affected by this, meeting with all of the state cattlemen's associations, talking to our partners on Capitol Hill who represent these states and have been working on these issues for a long time and, and coming up with a game plan. And I think at this point, we're considering a full slate of options about what might go into that game plan. All right, we'll be watching for that to play out now. Sieg, I want to take our focus down to the southern DPS, that area in Texas and New Mexico where the lesser prairie chicken was formally listed as endangered. When does that go into effect? Is it also January 24th, 2023? That's right, Mike. That also will take effect on January 24th of the coming year. And that's, uh, you know, a little bit of a different beast, no pun intended, because again, that DPS in the southern region is endangered. So you are going to see, you know, some new hurdles and some new challenges, decisions that have to be made uh, for folks operating on those lands. And I think it's a, a classic example, frankly, of uh, the federal government kind of getting it backwards here. You know, the LPC, we have seen time and time again, this is bird has been studied for, for decades at this point, they favor heterogeneous grazing acres. That means they favor areas where there's a lot of diverse plant life, different plant heights. Uh, you know, there's some little bare ground patches. You've got a variety of cover. They don't gravitate towards cropland. They don't gravitate towards really uniform sort of grasslands. So a lot of the sort of scrubby or sagebrush landscapes that you see folks grazing cattle and sheep on out in the West, that's where this bird really likes to be. And we have absolutely no evidence that they cannot you know, survive, nest, and thrive in areas with livestock. In fact, it's quite the contrary. You tend to find them in those areas, and you tend to find those successful nests in agricultural operations like cattle ranches. So, you know, it, this is a, another good example, much like grizzly bears or gray wolves or any other species you want to pick off of the list, where the federal government is looking at it from the top down, and they're completely missing what the narrative really looks like on the ground. Sieg, for that endangered designation in the Southern DPS, does it cover lesser prairie chicken in the entire state of Texas and New Mexico, or is it just south of the panhandle that it's endangered? Good question. So the rule applies technically to the entire state of New Mexico and uh, a designated portion of the Texas panhandle. I can sh send you the map or your, your users can certainly, uh, you know, shoot us a note and we'll send that map over. Uh, but the the sort of force and effect will only be in areas where the bird is actually found. So while the entire state of New Mexico is covered by the rule, the bird isn't currently found in every part of the state of New Mexico. So you're really going to see this affecting producers in those areas where there's pre-existing habitat currently. All right. So now, see, you mentioned this is the final rule. This is effectively the law of the land beginning there on January 24th, 2023. With that being the case for producers in New Mexico, in Texas, in one of these covered territories, is there anything they need to be doing here in the next month and a half to two months to prepare for this uh, to roll across their grounds? 
That's a great question, Mike. I think first and foremost, we'd strongly encourage anybody who thinks they're going to be impacted by this to get in touch with their local uh, livestock association, whether that's their local NCBA affiliate or a, a different you know, state level cattle association. We'd strongly encourage you to get in touch with them now. Get on their radar, because as we move forward with this and we're you know, putting together uh, letters, comments and, and potentially other actions that we might take against this rule, uh, we're going to need those firsthand stories. We're going to need that strength the numbers and we want to hear from you. I'll also say for what it's worth, you know, I I don't work for them, but Farm Bureau is also very involved in this issue. So if you're a Farm Bureau member, it's also a good time to give that, that office a call and let them know that this is something that you care about. And of course, as always with any of these regulations, we strongly encourage folks to start the conversation now with their local, uh, with their local offices that represent these regulators. If you have a good relationship with Fish and Wildlife, with uh, an FSA office, with with, um, you know, if you're out as, as a permittee in the West, maybe your BLM or Forest Service office, build that relationship now because you don't want the first conversation you have with them to be when when they're coming after you for something or when something's going wrong. You want to have that pre-existing relationship so you can really talk things through, you know, in practical terms and not just be playing defense all the time. That is certainly the case. And now, Sieg, you mentioned at the start of our conversation that NCBA PLC working with a group of stakeholders to map the roadmap for the future here on this particular issue. Do you have any other indication from the administration that other ESA actions might be coming out soon? That's a great question, Mike. I mean, there's certainly quite a few on the regulatory agenda that was put out a few months ago that the, the White House periodically releases to sort of show where they're headed. The problem is, uh, or rather the opportunity, if you want to look at it as a glass half full, is they can't do all of those things in the next you know month and a half or so. Uh, and when they get into 2023, they're going to be on the back half of uh, you know, President Biden's term in office. They're also going to be dealing with a little bit of a different congressional makeup than they've had so far. So there's some factors that work in our favor to slow some of these things down. But, you know, things like the grazing regs rewrites that's happening over at the BLM, uh, things like uh, a final rule on WOTUS or a final rule on, on gray wolf uh, uh, management. All of those processes are things that, you know, NCBA and PLC are going to stay heavily involved in and either where we can try and prevent, you know, a bad train from moving mm -hmm. faster down the track and where we can't, we're going to push back against those ideas with all the tools that we have available. Glad to hear it, folks. That's Seeger Johannes with the Public Lands Council. You can find them online at publiclandscouncil.org. Stick around for more AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. You're going to need me. You're going to need us. All of us. You're going to need our technical skills. Our math. Our engineering skills. You're going to need our help with your water. Your air. Your food. You're going to need our organizational skills. Our problem-solving skills. You're going to need our determination, our honesty, our compassion. You're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. And we promise we'll be there when you need us. Today, 4-H is growing the next generation of leaders. Support us at 4-H.org. At Bravant, 
Our corn and soybean varieties are vetted nearly three million times against the competition. How many? Three million frickin' times. Hey man, I'm standing right next to you. Ah, sorry, got a little excited. Don't take us at our word, take us at our proof. Visit Bravant.com to see for yourself. Bravant Seeds, it's about time. Bravant multi-year on-farm pre-commercial head-to-head comparisons, third-party and research trials, based on more than 2.8 million comparisons. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to The Monthly Grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on The Monthly Grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. This is the place most people think of when they hear that a seed has been engineered for superior performance and designed with proven genetic traits. Because something like that could only come from a lab, right? But this is where Allegiant Seed by CHS comes from. It's made by farmers for farmers. Its advanced genetics and unbeatable value are proven here in their fields to make sure they do the job in yours. Talk to your CHS retailer about Allegiant Seed today or learn more at AllegiantSeed.com. With Harvest wrapping up, Channel Technical Agronomist Don Gustafson joins me to provide an outlook on Harvest and an analysis of Channel's product performance this year. Don, what are some growers in your region considering as you look ahead to the 23 season? Well, I recommend that folks plan for normal in more ways than one. Plan for normal in terms of maturity. Um, Overall, the farmers that switched to early maturities this year, they left some bushels on the table. So for 2023, plant your normal maturity range, but Uh, Don't early it up because you'll lose bushels, but also be careful not to go too long in maturity uh, because an early frost can really ding that late corn, especially when planted out of zone. And with great genetics at our channel lineup, uh, we have a diverse portfolio that can cover just about every acre. That was channel technical agronomist Don Gustafson. To see how channel products are performing in your area and sign up to receive local harvest results via text or email, visit channel.com slash yield. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, farm radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, folks, thanks so much for tuning in to AOA today. We always appreciate being a part of your day and helping to keep you up to speed on what factors are moving the agricultural markets. I do want to circle back to a couple of headlines that have been coming out early this week. Darren Newsom talked about this first one in segment one here on today's show, and that's the railroad union votes. They are coming back in. Today was the day that we got the votes from both the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen, BLET. They are the largest union on the railroad. They represent as you can imagine, locomotive engineers and trainmen. And we also have the vote coming in today from the International Association of Sheet Metal, Air, Rail, and Transportation Workers. That union is called Smart TD. That's how it's being reported there out in the news. And of those two, there has been a split on these union uh, contract ratifications. BLET, the engineers and trainmen, voted just slightly. It was the barest majority. I believe it was 50.7% voted to approve the proposed deal that was uh, negotiated between the Biden administration and the Class 1 carriers back in September. BLET has approved it. However, Smart TD, that sheet metal union, they have not. Again, it was a very, very close vote, 52 to 48% in favor of declining the proposed contract. Now, there are at present two unions, excuse me, three unions have, uh, I apologize, four, when we include SMART, four unions have voted against the deal of the 12 that are in negotiations. Eight of them now have voted in support. Now, that should greenlight the 
the strike vote potential. However, all of the unions have agreed to go back to the negotiating table, and the three that have voted against it have agreed to extend a strike deadline through at least December 4th. So this gives the market certainty that we will not be having a railroad strike at least until December 4th. But folks, if you have been watching the calendar, that date is getting closer and closer and closer. All the meanwhile, we continue to see water levels in the Mississippi, as John Baranek mentioned earlier in the program, continuing to decline. This is a long-term problem that is shaping up. And as I've spoken with my friends in the rail industry, a few of my friends are on the engineer's side and they supported the deal broadly just because they wanted some certainty. But at the end of the day, they are still frustrated by some of the HR concerns that the railroads are bringing to the table. And even if this deal gets approved, I'm not anticipating a huge improvement in rail service until they get that particular issue sorted out. Now, this time of year, of course, we are seeing quarterly profit reports by publicly traded companies. On the whole, those profits for the third quarter have been strong, though they have been below what analysts were anticipating. Uh, excuse me, higher than analysts have anticipating, still coming down, though, from the pandemic period. And there is one that I think the ag industry will be watching closely for coming out on Wednesday. We'll get John Deere and companies quarterly sales and profit. Now, analysts have been looking at uh, John Deere's books so far, and the expectation is that their quarterly profits and sales numbers are going to look very solid. At the end of the day, the, the concern heading into Wednesday for John Deere and Co. is, were they able, on the tightness of supply out there in the market, were they able to raise prices enough to overcome the tremendous difficulties they saw over the last three years in their supply chain? Now, market analysts so far do believe that uh, Deere was able to price in a lot of those hikes. Uh, analyst from Jefferies, Stephen Volkman, said he believes that the make or break this quarter will be the supply chain. The demand side of the equation hasn't wavered and remains quite strong. I think that might be the understatement of the year. If you have been attending any farm auctions or visiting with machinery dealers, demand is incredible out there in the countryside. Market watchers will no doubt be waiting for John Deere's quarterly profits on Wednesday, and we'll see what kind of signal that sends more broadly to the ag investor. We've also got some other action happening in Washington, D.C. The Congressional Chicken Caucus in the House and Senate last week sent out letters. Nearly 120 folks signed these letters going to the USDA requesting a six-month extension in the comment period for the agency's recent Packers and Stockyard Act rule. So, Packers and Stockyards has been looking at the chicken industry. This rule is called the Inclusive Competition and Market Integrity under the Packers and Stockyards Act. I'm not sure if that's a clever acronym, but it's certainly a lot of words. That's the rule that uh, the U.S. Uh, that these lawmakers have uh, are taking exemption with. They say they believe that they want the stakeholders to have more time. Quote, the letter writers say that they need the technical question answered, and there are definitions in the rule that haven't been adequately explained, and they hope the USDA pauses implementation and extends the comment period so that all of the stakeholders can get more information about how this rule will impact the poultry industry. And last week, of course, I had the opportunity to travel down to Kansas City for the National Association of Farm Broadcasters meeting a fantastic, fantastic couple of days catching up with all sorts of folks in the ag industry. But it did put me on my back feet when it comes to watching what is happening in Washington, D.C. We did see the USDA release several pieces of information, some additional funding this past week. I wanted to run through what they have been up to. One of the documents that came out came from the USDA's ERS, that Economic Research Service, and they released the two 2022 edition of Rural America at a Glance. And now this is a study they perform every several years, and they are just trying to make sense of what is happening here in the rural areas. And well, the... The sense is, I don't think it's going to be shocking to a lot of us who live in rural areas. The working age population declined by 4.9% and the population under age 18, so looking at all youth as a whole, declined by 5.7%. However, those younger 18 folks might get a boost if they want to move into farming and ranching because USDA also announced $24 million in an investment across 45 different organizations and institutions that are training and teaching beginning farming. 
farmers. This is part of NEFA's beginning farmer and rancher development program. And the idea is we have a hole out there, particularly in ranch country, as a lot of cattle producers and ranch owners continue to age, there aren't those young folks willing to come back, willing or able. Capital requirements certainly are a factor in keeping young folks out of the organ out of ranching. And these programs are designed to help give them a leg up. Might not be providing fiscal support directly, but certainly providing that education and hopefully connections to get these young folks moving out to farms and ranches across the country. Folks, do be sure to tune in to AOA tomorrow. We'll be talking about more issues that impact the ag industry. And in the meantime, we hope you have a safe day. And if you're traveling for Thanksgiving this week, have safe travels. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the monthly grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. This is the place most people think of when they hear that a seed has been engineered for superior performance and designed with proven genetic traits. Because something like that could only come from a lab, right? But this is where Allegiant Seed by CHS comes from. It's made by farmers for farmers. Its advanced genetics and unbeatable value are proven here in their fields to make sure they do the job in yours. Talk to your CHS retailer about Allegiant Seed today or learn more at AllegiantSeed.com. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice U.S. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org.